from Madison, Wisconsin in the United States of Global Hegemony, it's Didactic Syncast, with your host Eric P. Hello Earthlings and welcome to the Didactic Syncast, your overview of everything important on the planet Earth. I'm Eric S. Piotrowski, a writer and educator in Wisconsin, USA. I am known as Duke Scath in the world of video games and Twitter, a.k.a. Scartol in the world of Wikipedia and Reddit. Today is, what is today? Today is Wednesday, July 1st. And, uh, yeah, on this show I bring you a range of news stories, historical and literary perspectives, and my thoughts on topics like current events, war, human rights, economics, education, hip-hop music, and killer robots. So buckle up and let's get started. A little bit better than dope is, a brand new kid to show biz. With knowledge I persevere, but find out do me a favor. favor. Let me in here, then we can find a rhyme to fill in space and drop the I gotta tell you people, I got a million things to say about everything that's going on. I don't want to talk too much here at the outset because I did this great talk with uh, my friend Faith and I want you to get right to that. But I do want to say a few things real quick. First of all, about the coronavirus. It's such a disgrace that the Trump administration and the Republican Party in general have allowed this to be made into a political issue so that people are not only refusing to wear masks, but like attacking doctors who suggest that they should wear masks. Uh, challenging the credentials of like medical professionals and it's just so demoralizing because now that's what's leading to an uptick in coronavirus infections and we should be on the tail end of this thing but instead we're you know the worst is yet to come they keep telling us so it doesn't I don't know what it means for us to go back to school in the fall they're talking about some sort of hybrid system where some of the students come some days and we do distance learning for the rest of it and it's clear that the distance learning wasn't sufficient, but it may not be safe for us to go back in the fall. And I don't, I just, we would be in such a better position if the Trump administration had had a real plan and stuck to it and demanded that everybody wear masks instead of this hodgepodge of narcissism and ignorance and misinformation and inject Clorox into the lungs and all that crap. So I'm very, I'm like viscerally angry because my health and safety are being threatened by people who refuse to wear masks. So that, that pisses me off. I'm also pissed off by the never-ending stream of videos that I keep seeing of, you know, police brutalizing people and wealthy white folks standing in front of their mansions with guns. And, uh, yeah, it seems like so many people have kind of lost their sense of perspective. And, you know, look, I'm also frustrated by the fact that the forward statue in Madison was toppled. I think that's not okay like i i was frustrated by that and you know people say that it was representative of a certain you know white perspective which i can't argue with that okay and if we want to put up a different statue okay cool like i'm all right with that you know maybe one that doesn't look like a white woman but at the same time i feel like it's a level of rage and frustration you know I'm, I'm upset at the rage and frustration and i know i can't necessarily be mad at the people who are outraged and frustrated right like you know they they that rage and frustration is legitimate i happen to disagree with that particular target but you know mao said a revolution is not a dinner party so i i accept that but anyway i also want to say quickly here at the outset that this chop experiment in seattle for those who don't know it was the something like capitol hill autonomous project or something like that chop and basically they took over police station kicked the police out and they ran it as this like police free zone for a few weeks and it's a very interesting experiment but it's it's a failure the the police are taking it down as i speak and it was it was partly because a bunch of people got shot there over the course of the few weeks now it's not been a peaceful place for a long time right there have been shootings and attacks and you know street crime happens everywhere right and we can't say that Street crime happened there because there was no police presence. We might say that, you know, police wanted to investigate or, you know, whatever, get to the crime scene sooner or whatever, whatever. I'm not going to weigh in on that. What I will say is that it's clear to me that CHOP was a failure. And in part, I think it was a failure because they kicked the police out and they didn't have anything to replace them with. And to me, that needs to be the lesson that we learn from projects like CHOP, which is, if you're going to get rid of the police, okay, but then replace it with what? 
And, you know, people talk about taking police out of schools, which is fine. I don't necessarily have an objection with that. But I do know that sometimes the fights get real hectic in schools. And I don't want the school to be a pipeline to prison. Uh, I don't want kids who fight in school necessarily to get arrested. It depends on how they fight and, and all sorts of other things. But I do believe in prison abolition. I believe in getting rid of jails. You know, the penitentiary is a 13th century idea that's based on putting people in a room and making them think about what they've done and then they'll change their lives. Well, that's clearly not the way it works. And it's a prison industrial complex and I don't want that. But I also think that if you pull out one set of security measures and have nothing to replace it with, that's not a recipe for success. So I think that all of us who are opposed to institutions of a police state in general need to think long and hard about how we, you know, respond to security concerns and the threat of street violence, which is not going to go away just because the cops do. So that's all I have to say about that. Anyway, I'm going to shut up now because I want you to hear this awesome interview that I did with Faith. And uh, yeah, thank you everybody for uh, being in touch. And special thanks to Tim Chopper Kelly for showing me love for Nimbus X and uh, the Duchess and Antonio and Jacinta and everybody else who's given me positive feedback. And I'm working on part three, so watch for that. And I hope you enjoyed the interview with Garrett last time. And now here comes the interview with Faith Stevenson. Enjoy. Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. Stop repenting because the ending is near. But don't panic, you can't function if you live in a fear. Pay attention, you got to listen to hear. I am here with Faith Rival. Uh, I'm so used to calling you Faith Stevenson, but uh, she just got married, so... Uh, she uh, yeah has a new name now. She is an educator, an activist, an organizer, a, um, a a leader in our community, and just an all around awesome person. So Faith, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. I do want to point out I haven't technically changed the name yet. So uh, for now, I am still Faith Stevenson. Oh, that's so much easier for me. <laughs> Yeah, Faith, welcome to the show. It's good to have you here. I think, you know, I've been going through a lot of different people that I know and trying to get uh, different fields of, you know, my life, video game friends and, and friends I've known for years and, and so on and so forth. So anyway, let's start with, uh, I know you graduated from East High School in Madison. Did you grow up in Madison? Yes. Okay. I was born and raised in Madison. Mm -hmm. I am a St. Mary's baby. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I've been here my whole life, but I do like to tell people that, you know, uh, full disclosure, I spent a lot of time um, in Alabama, Tennessee, Mississippi, because that's where my family is originally from. Right. So my mom, of course, was born in Alabama and my dad was born in Mississippi. My brother, being the lucky sucker that he is, was also born in Alabama. Right. And then they moved up here prior to my birth. And that's gotcha. why I'm a Madison girl. Yeah. And do you remember your first trip? like to the South? To be honest, my first trip to the South was probably right around three to six months. So as soon as my parents could pack me up in a, <laughs> a baby carrier and drag me out, they were gone. Right, um, right. The most, the youngest memories I have of being in the South is probably my grandmother's house. Mm. And I might've been like, maybe six or something like that. And sure. they're just very small snippets of mm -hmm. sitting on the floor in her, like, it's like a two bedroom shack. I think there's <laughs> technically there's three bedrooms, but like one was an addition to mm -hmm. um, like a living room that had been made into a bedroom. Cause my grandparents had seven kids. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, and how would you describe your experience growing up in Madison? Um, it was a mixture of both really amazing experiences, but also being really aware of my otherness mm. in a lot of the social circles that I, I found myself in. Because I was a kid that was privileged enough to have two parents with uh, college degrees right. that came in like the second or third wave of the Great Migration to build a better life for their kids. Um, and provided as such for us a private school education. So kindergarten through eighth grade, minus the sixth grade year that I spent mm -hmm. in public schools, mm -hmm. I, I was a private school kid. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I, I went to a private elementary school, and I, I think that's an interesting perspective. How do you think that 
change the trajectory of your life, would you say? Oh, I definitely feel like it gave me more access to white culture in a way Mm. that like growth and adaptation is not always readily accessible to kids who don't have that kind of education. Do you know Mm. what I mean? Like I, I saw whiteness as a way to fit in, but it was also a way to cross a lot of social and systemic barriers because of my ability to articulate my myself the way that my friends were articulating themselves and mm. it was um being the token black kid and you know right. the non-threatening black kid and like right. the really the really good kid from the really good family like mm-hmm. it it provided that that access to a lot of cultural capital i'll say mm-hmm and do you feel like you were code switching then at a young age that you learned different forms of being and thinking in that oh, process? Definitely. Yeah. That was, that's definitely a part of what I learned growing up was how to switch on that language difference and how to switch it off. Like right. the, the me around my, my parents, my mom, my dad, my brother, is a very different language um, Mm. as compared to even around my really Southern cousins and how I speak to them, that's a different kind of language. And even in institutions like school or work, that became a very different language. So it was part of me to like switch into those, those dialects and switch into those, um, those abilities to access different kind of language. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And did you see that as a purely positive thing, as one thing that you had to do that was just frustrating or sort of as a mixture of those things? It definitely was a mixture of things. Um, Jamila Lascott has a TED talk where she talks about being like a multilingual orator yeah. because of her ability to switch between her Caribbean heritage and mm-hmm. patois and her ability to speak the standards king english when she needs to and the ability to slide into like urban dialect or urban slang mm-hmm. and and ebonics and like being trilingual in that sense it it's a massive benefit right. but it's also incredibly frustrating because sometimes you feel like you can't be your authentic self mm. Sure. In, and do you find that? Instances. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And sorry, I cut you off there. No, you're fine. Do you feel like there's, because I feel like as a teacher, there, you know, I'm not, you know, I have to use a certain way of speaking in the classroom that's different from when I'm with my friends. Obviously, that's, that's very different from the kinds of code switching that a black teacher has to use. But I wonder if, if you can say something about how that has affected you as a teacher. As a teacher, I've, I've kind of become this weird mishmash in, in trying to be my most authentic, authentic self yeah. and in trying to embrace um, language that's not necessarily always standard English or the King's English in my classroom. Mm-hmm. So like even when my students speak heavily in Ebonics and like... African-American vernacular is probably a more appropriate term, but like Mm -hmm. when my kids are speaking like that, I try, I try to remember to bring that, that other piece of my real authentic self to the classroom. Um, When I first started teaching, I do think I held on to this um, mindset that the kids would take me seriously if Mm -hmm. I spoke the King's English and I made myself appear to be um, very reputable and very serious in terms of like not using too much slang, but just enough so that they can know I relate or not using like too many rap lyrics in like classroom (laughs) analysis of literature because I wanted them to take my literary analysis seriously. Mm -hmm. So I think that definitely impacted me when I was a younger teacher. Mm-hmm. And I know it's silly to say because I'm only in my seventh year of teaching, but my mentality over the last couple of years has shifted to being that authentic 110% myself. Yes, I am capable of being um, a very articulate individual when speaking the King's English. However, 
I'm also capable of sliding into some Southern dialect. Like mm -hmm. I tease the kids all the time that y'all is technically a contraction. <laughs> right. So like when I teach them about contractions, I talk to them about that. And I, I remind them that, you know, language is not representative of your intelligence. Yeah. Language is just a popular way based on your culture, based on your area, based on mm -hmm. your region mm -hmm. um, in which people articulate themselves. So yeah. I don't know, it, it, it impacted me when I was younger, but now that I've grown older and more settled in in my impression of even if I wear blue jeans to the classroom, even if I speak, speak in slang, even if I joke with the kids and let my authentic self be, be real, mm -hmm. that's not going to change the fact that I'm capable, I'm competent, and that shouldn't change the fact that when they are capable and competent. Right. And I feel like in a way, it, it, it lets them know that there's lots of ways of articulating, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like that it's not just that this one type of language is the one that goes with being smart. And that, yeah. you know, I remember watching an interview with a guy who had dreadlocks and he was a researcher at Carnegie Mellon or something. And he was, someone asked him about it and he was like, well, it's interesting that people assume that because I have dreadlocks that I'm not a serious medical researcher or whatever, you know, like he, he saw it as part of his purpose in wearing the dreadlocks as a way to basically bash apart this notion that there's some incongruity between one's hairstyle and one's level of intelligence. Yeah. And I, I feel like as educators, that's part of what I like to do. So I like to talk to them about, you know, the words that have been added to the dictionary lately as a way to say, you know, look, yeah, this language stuff is fluid and, and you, you shouldn't get caught up on, you know, technically, you know, stylistic forms of this is proper English, quote unquote, so much as you should say, I know how to speak lots of different languages. Absolutely. I try and remind them that speaking proper English is so tied to colonialism mm -hmm. and deciding whose language is the best language based on how well like you have conquered and stamped out their language. Yeah. That's not necessarily an indicator of brilliance. Right. That just means that one group of people was more, more able to conquer another group and mm -hmm. erase who those people were by taking their language. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. Um, okay, so sort of getting back to, I'm trying to weave all these different strands together. Uh, you, when you got done with uh, high school, you decided to go to Stillman College, which is in Alabama. And I'm sure yeah. that must have been a kind of a, I don't know, was, was it a difficult choice? Like what led you to decide on that particular institution? It was a natural progression for me because my parents are both alumni of Stillman College. Gotcha. So they met there and fell in love and, you know, they did the historically black college thing and historically black colleges are a big deal in our family. Yeah. So a lot of the generations of my people have decided to go the HBCU route because mm -hmm. there's so much that an HBCU does to feed you, not just academically, but also feed you mentally and emotionally. And it just, it breeds better more brilliant, more articulate, more cultural, more worldly, in my humble opinion, as a completely biased source, people. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't yeah, hard for me. I think the hardest part was probably the culture shock. Yeah, sure. Um, I was going to ask about that next. What kind of culture yeah. shock did you experience? Well, there's a difference in being from a family of predominantly Black people and moving to a campus that is housed by predominantly black people that aren't mm -hmm. your family, mm -hmm. but they become your family. Right. So it was crazy. I never had a black teacher until I stumbled upon the, uh, the deans at the school or the professors of the school or even the, 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 the cafeteria workers, everyone there either was black or understood mm. what it means to be black. Mm -hmm. And that was, that was a culture shock for me. I think coming from Wisconsin, which is such like a whitewashed culture, mm. um, I think it was very, very different being in a place where they didn't really listen to rock music. Right. Like that was at like, I showed up with my, uh, 
indie rock like t-shirts and they were like what in the hell are you wearing <laughs> yeah <laughs> so you... like it, it just was a different experience like the food was different like you can't right. go to uw madison or uw milwaukee or uw um platteville and get ch chicken on a wednesday like right. full-on fried chicken with yeah. like corn and cornbread and right. like sweet potatoes like oh yeah that wasn't a thing and that was our food every single day yeah. some days it was fried fish other days mm. we ate things like from my childhood like hop and john or like mm. greens or like it just crazy 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 amounts of culture integrated into your everyday life and it becomes the norm for you right and instead of it being a separate part of you does that make sense oh yeah because when i was when i was here my mom cooked all those things for me she didn't cook mm. them every day but right. she cooked those things sunday dinners that was a normal thing for us to have mm -hmm. pinto beans or like black eyed peas or right. like squash and like to go to school and get that even though you're so far from home mm. To have that integrated into your everyday life we talked about black literature mm -hmm. which some was something i didn't have access to here in wisconsin schools right we we talked about ciphers we talked mm -hmm. about authors that yeah. looked like me sounded like me thought in similar contexts like mm -hmm. it blew my mind being surrounded by a different kind of culture and language every single day so it wasn't the home faith, it became just faith. Right. And would you say, I mean, speaking about food real quick, you also were a lot closer to Waffle House, which oh, doesn't yeah. exist up here. And that's, oh, yeah. every time we go back to the South, I'm like, first, as soon as we get, as soon as I see, if we're in the car, as soon as I see it on the highway, next exit, Waffle, I'm like, we're going there. We're going. Diana will be like, we just <laughs> ate. I'm like, I don't care. We're going to eat again. I, I don't care. You can't tell. Like, I don't care what anybody says. Like, even some of my friends who grew up, like, one of my very best friends that was in my wedding, um, she is a Tuscaloosa native. Uh -huh. And, like, if I go home, I'm like, hey, Mimi, we're going to get Waffle House. Yeah. She's like, no, come on. <laughs> there are good restaurants near here. I don't want to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't care what anybody says. Yeah. Krispy Kreme donuts up here uh, are not the Krispy Kreme no, donuts from the South. Period. No, they are not. That's right. Like they're not the same it's something yeah. about it like right do you remember your first winter there <laughs> i was walking around in hoodies and a sweatshirt and my <laughs> my college roommate was like what are you doing <laughs> it is freezing put a coat on right even like like i said my best friend's mom um we would go to her house you know for dinners and things like that or i'd go and i'd swing to pick her up when I had graduated, I'd, I'd go back and I'd stay there when we went to homecoming. So my best right. friend's mom, we're getting all scantily clad to go out to party or whatever because <laughs> it's homecoming weekend. It's our first homecoming back. Mm -hmm. Mama looks at me, Miss Arlene looks at me and she says, mm, you're not even going to put a scarf on? Because <laughs> like winters down there are like, I'm sorry, but they're a joke. Right. <laughs> If there's Absolutely. nothing that can compare to winters up here. Yeah, so I was no walking doubt. around in sweaters and everybody sure. thought I was a crazy person. Oh yeah. And then did you spend summers down there or did you come back up here for summers? I spent one summer down there. And that's why you didn't spend two summers down there. <laughs> well, I spent one summer down there in college right. um, and, because my mom always wanted me to come back home. Right. Home being Wisconsin because, sure. you know, she didn't get to see me and my mom and I are very close. So, mm -hmm. I mean, she saw me enough, way more than she should have, I would <laughs> up out of my window and she'd be like, hey, I'm like 10 minutes down the street. So I'm pulling up on Stillman Boulevard behind the big gates. Are right. you coming out? Right. Like, First of all, lady, what are you doing here? You live 12 <laughs> hours away. Right. Yeah. And so were the summers difficult for you? I mean, when Diane goes with me to Florida in the summertime, she's just like, you people are insane. This isn't a place people ought to live. <laughs> it's not hard for me. Like, it's just, it, I mean, it's just part of the other part of me. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Right. So like when I go home and I call Alabama home, mm -hmm. um, when I go down home, it, 
like your body naturally just adjusts after a while. Right. So that first couple hours below the Mason Dixon, mm -hmm. that's a little rough, but yeah. you know, I'm a sun bunny in general. Like my right. skin craves melanin. Yeah. Uh, my melanin craves sun. So it doesn't uh -huh. bother me to, to feel the warmth. I'd, I'd prefer it. Sure. Sure. Um, so then you did, did you do your student teaching? Like, did you study education at Stillman? I did not. Okay. I fell in love with education my senior year after I had pledged my sorority, my Greek sorority, Alpha Kappa mm -hmm. Alpha Sorority okay. Incorporated. And we had to do a bunch of volunteer hours mm -hmm. in order to be able to, to remain active on campus. Okay. So of course, all the older sorority sisters were like, no, nah, we've been doing volunteer hours. We're not doing that. Right. Uh, send the new kids. <laughs> <laughs> so they go shuffle us out around the community <laughs> in our cute little <laughs> new sorority sweatshirts and such. And like, right. I volunteered at Martin Luther King Jr. Elementary mm -hmm. doing like, reading assistance mm -hmm. so like me and the kids one at a time would like go out into the hall and me being an english major we'd like work our way through phonics and we'd read aloud and i'd read to them and they'd read to me and like i was more or less like a glorified reading help right, right. for one-on-one -on -one, like individual help mm -hmm. um so I, I basically got pimped out for a bunch of community service hours and like <laughs> fell in love <laughs> with that light bulb moment where mm. a kid is struggling over a word and right. they're looking at you in frustration and they're looking back down at the word mm. and they slowly started sounding it out and they got it right and they'd yeah. be like that's the word yeah that's the word now read it yeah. say it again in the sentence so yeah. then they read the sentence all together and their eyes light up and they get so excited and they're so proud of themselves i fell in love with that that click Mm -hmm. that happens that magic right. of oh my god i did it yeah and did you fall in love with the younger students as well or did you just say you know what i love this process of education did, did you know you did you want to teach in high school like did you have an idea where you wanted to land as an educator oh i already knew little kids were not for me okay <laughs> <laughs> like right off the bat like i loved volunteering at elementary level that was yeah. fine so when I came back after I had graduated and like had fallen in love with the thought of being a teacher, uh, and if you ask my mama, she'll tell you point blank that she told me I was going to be a teacher when I was a child. Mm. And I fought it for as long as I could. Right. But she, she knew that it was, it was meant for me. Right. Um, in the crazy way that old black ladies like dream about fish dreams and like <laughs> have premonitions and stuff like that. Like, yeah, that's my mama. Okay. So, she um she told me i was going to be a teacher and gotcha. it's through that process senior year that i really just fell in love with that process mm -hmm. but i knew that like little kids just weren't for me right um so i toyed around after i got back from college working for madison school of community recreation doing mm -hmm. after school programs mm -hmm. and slowly worked my way up so i started with kindergarten fifth graders and i was a group leader and that's when I was for real, like, nope, mm -mm, little kids, <laughs> not for me. I'm not going to do this for the rest of my life. Absolutely right. not. Right. And then I agreed to move up and do sixth through eighth grade. So I was the middle school, yeah, middle school uh, group leader. And mm -hmm. I, I liked that. It was okay. Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, this is not bad. They're not like terrible. But I got sick of, put that down. Don't touch that. Get right. off of each other's laps. Stop <laughs> touching each other. <laughs> yeah. I got I got so sick of that. And right. I was just like, well, let me give high school a shot. And that's mm -hmm. when I um, started my practicum. Mm -hmm. So that was my first instance student teaching. And it was at East High School. Oh, okay. And it was a group of freshman English students that were predominantly mm -hmm. black that hadn't passed the school year. And they were mm -hmm. taking summer school. Mm -hmm. And that's when I fell in love with teenagers. Was it weird to go back to your alma mater? Absolutely not. It was 100% my goal. It is mm. complete and pure happenstance that I ended up in Sun Prairie. Right. We don't get as many light bulb moments in high school as we do in elementary, I would imagine. Like I never taught elementary. I did, you know, sub jobs and stuff. But, you know, what you mentioned in terms of like helping the kids sound out the word, I mm -hmm. feel like that leads and younger kids have less armor on. 
So yeah. when I taught middle school for a year, I felt like it was easier to get connections there because they weren't quite in that whole like, I'm almost done, especially now that I teach mostly seniors. So I'll go one more semester. I'm not doing anything for anybody. I'm sick of this whole place. Do you miss um, the fact that you could get those aha moments more often with the younger kids? Honestly, I'm the teacher get, that gets super excited about the smallest, most minuscule things right. that are like big accomplishments for kids. So yeah. for me, Eric, I have those aha moments regularly with kids okay. and it feels so good. So like even sitting down and talking to them about grammar mm -hmm. and they get it right. and it's just like, oh, so subject verb agreement is just like when the person in your sentence is a singular person and then like their verb is a singular verb bingo yeah. let's go right. Woo! Right, right, like right. i cheer for stuff like that yeah sure, like, sure. i'm the most obnoxious over the top absolutely like i'm pretty sure the kids are like steve you need to chill <laughs> right. but even when we sit down and we do things like writing or analysis right I mean, it's it's the simple aha moment that the kids have when I, mm -hmm. I, I tell them, okay, tell me more about X, Y, and Z. Right. And they kind of fumble through the words and try and put mm -hmm. it together, but they stumble on a really good idea. Yeah. I get excited for that. I'm sure. like, I smack the desk and I'm like, that's how you do it, Zoe. Yeah. Write that down. Yeah, yeah, totally. And it may be the fact that because I'm teaching a lot of creative writing and stuff that it's, it, you know, they, first yeah. of all, they're always so hard on themselves and so down on like everything they yeah. do. And they're they're going to be very good. Uh, so most of the, work there is just getting them to overcome their negative egos but it's also the type of thing where i imagine you know they they're not often likely to say like oh now i know what the character is going to do when he finally meets up with his father again like you know, we don't yeah really that. but if i taught more grammar maybe i'd have more of those I don't know. yeah i mean um, it's in everything like everything that we do in our classroom like i have the kids do like journal writings mm -hmm. um and we call them CPRs because no kid takes journal writing seriously, <laughs> right, right? Right. right? Just the words together, like, you want me to do what? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, like, we call them CPR, which is critical thinking, processing, and reflection. Mm. And we'll do topics about, like, race and beauty and the beauty industry and narcissism. Yeah. And when we did the Vietnam unit, we talked a lot about personal responsibility versus social responsibility and, like... Mm when I get kids to think, truly, truly think, mm -hmm. and not just regurgitate what other people have said to them, those are even the moments when I'm just like, two claps for uh, Chloe that came up with this great idea. Yeah. And like, and they give me my two claps, you know? Mm -hmm. At one point they were doing two claps and a Ric Flair and that just, oh Lord. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was hey, sometimes they need to find ways to improvise to make it their own, I suppose. I mean, they just, they, I don't know, maybe I'm still like in that part of my career where I'm just like blown away by when they're really good, they're just, they're spot on. Yeah, no, no. I, I think, I, I know what you mean. And I think that, that you know, it's, it's a common trend as you get more years in to get less excited about mm -hmm. the things they do when it's good because you know there's going to be those moments those experiences those days those weeks where they're dragging their feet and everything is sluggish and they don't seem mm -hmm. to, nobody seems to care about anything and it's so oh, easy yeah. to think that that's the job and yeah. i think it's important to stay connected to those positive moments and to to really look forward to those and to try to find ways to make them happen more often yeah so i don't know yeah what would you say is your favorite thing about teaching besides the aha moments or those exciting moments? Honestly, my favorite thing about teaching is probably helping students to see themselves as capable. Do you mm -hmm. know what I mean? Reversing mm -hmm. that whole, you're not good at math, so you shouldn't do it concept. Or right. that someone told them that English is not their strong suit. Mm -hmm. And that's what they've devoured. Right. Um, in every single English class that they've ever come across. Or even like, I'm not gonna lie, even the kids that are brilliant, brilliant kids, but people have told them that they're brilliant their whole lives. Right. And then they, they meet up with, and I'm not like tooting my own horn, but like they meet up with me and I push them mm -hmm. instead of allowing them to coast. Right. That's also part of my favorite moment. Like yeah. I love having that, that, that teaching moment with them where it's just like, 
no, it's not, although people have told you you're not capable, you can move mountains. Right. You just have to believe you can move mountains. Mm -hmm. And for those of you that already know you can move mountains, but you only want to push them a half inch, let's right. push them a whole one. Yeah, sure. What's most frustrating for you about the job? Oh, honestly, I think the most frustrating part for me is the fact that race and racism play and sexism play a very big role in some of my interactions sometimes. Mm -hmm. So really dealing with students who have this certain perception of African-American people mm -hmm. and they have this certain perception of women teachers, right. Right? right? And race and gender come into my classroom a lot more often than I would like Mm -hmm. negatively because mm -hmm. I like I oftentimes I get into not power struggles but I have students who are actively trying to get under my skin and I've right. had horrible moments where really racist things mm -hmm. have happened in my classroom right. to me I, I know a lot of people who listen to this will probably know a little bit about that but I wonder if you're comfortable talking about, like, for instance, the time you found the N-word scrawled on the desk there. Absolutely. Um, so basically, I had come back from lunch uh, and went under the cabinet of where I keep, like, snacks for the kids mm -hmm. and uh, where I keep their supplies. So, like, spare paper and pens and a pencil sharpener uh, mm -hmm. and things like that. And in the corner in black Sharpie, I found N-I-G-G-E-R scrawled in letters, block letters across the top of my countertop. Mm. And it was the strangest cocktail of emotions mm -hmm. in that instance that I've ever felt in my entire life. I was angry. I was hurt. I was mortified, embarrassed, mm -hmm. like there were just so many emotions uh, wrapped up into that moment. But most of all, the, the thing that I felt was vulnerability mm -hmm. and not in the sense that opens up and makes people feel like they can trust other people Right. in the sense of victimization. And I, I don't feel like I'm a victim. I have not felt that because I came from a very privileged background with very protective parents that shielded me from a lot. So in that moment, for me to feel that level of vulnerability, and I, it didn't feel safe. And that's the first time that I had ever felt unsafe in my classroom, in my small suburban, not small, medium-sized, maybe large-sized suburban right, school, right. Yeah. in this very almost podunky town right. for that. Like I, I'd never felt that in my entire life. Mm -hmm. And do you have any sense? Like, do you remember the time before that you had looked at that countertop? In other words, is there any way of knowing like what kind of time frame it might have happened in? I had been at that countertop the class before. Oh, okay somewhere around there. Cause like I said, okay. I keep the snacks up there. Yeah. So yeah students sure. know where they are and they right. know that they are more than welcome to go get them. Right. And I oftentimes replenish those snacks and restack yeah. the paper and make sure there are pencils. And there's also like a row of cabinets over there sure. that have my bookshelf and right. other supplies. I had been over by that countertop that very day. Sure. And so touched that very counter. Yeah, so it was presumably somebody in that previous class or the class that had just finished. Yes. Right. And was the school able or willing to do anything to try to look into it? Like, did you have any suspicion yourself about which individual might have been responsible? Um, the school, there, the conversation that I had with school is that there aren't cameras inside of a classroom. So we don't know who could have done it? It could have been right. any one of the 
30 kids that had maybe 40 kids that had cycled through in the last couple hours. Right. Um, but I had, the interesting thing is there are some people that wear their bigotry in a way that is not subtle. Right. But not overt. Right. You know, they weren't threatening me. They weren't doing anything like that, but you could tell Mm-hmm. As a person of color, you can tell when there is a person that does not wear their bigotry, that does wear their bigotry quite unsubtly. Right. And then there are, of course, more subtle people that aren't even aware that they might be bigots. Mm-hmm. So, like, the, I think I have a pretty good idea of who did it. Mm-hmm. Um, because the very next day, of course... I dusted myself off. I mm. went to work like I'm supposed to and right. showed up that day. And after having processed and digested the moment, mm-hmm. I spoke to every single one of my classes, mm-hmm. all of them, whether sure. they could have been complicit in the incident or whether they had no clue. I told right. them, this is the lived experience of a black teacher who you mm-hmm. all say you love right. in Sun Prairie High School. Let's mm-hmm. talk about how race and racism impacts people today. It's not a thing of the past. Right. It's something that people are living through mm-hmm. in the most subtle of ways and the most unsubtle of ways. Yeah. And I, I talked to every single hour and there were some faces during the hour that could have potentially have done it mm-hmm. that were looking pretty unapologetic maybe yeah. smug a little right. right so um yeah i can't can't say for sure who did it and that's yeah. probably the scary part right not knowing who of my kids kids that you know i had always thought of as my kids sure would have done that to right. a person that truly and deeply cared about yeah. not just their education, but them as people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, it seems so terrifying to me to think about what might motivate someone in that instance and to, to not, like you said, to, to not have any remorse, to, to see how it's affecting you and feel even proud. You know, that to me is a mindset that is psychologically horrifying and yet mm-hmm. I know that that's the mindset of white supremacy. And that's a mindset that lives in all of us white mm-hmm. folks that we need to get in touch with because that's the only way to guide ourselves and other people away from it. Yeah. And I don't know if I am confident that that examination, that that, that interrogation of our white selves is happening right now in the way that a lot of people are hoping that it is. Does that make sense? Elaborate for me. Well, you know, we had the E-team lunch recently and we were talking Mm -hmm. about this moment and are we hopeful about things changing? And in some ways, yes, right? Madison just voted to take the SROs out of schools. There's a lot of, you know, positive signs in terms of um, structural adjustments to, you know, the police state large scale. Mm-hmm. But I, I feel like we, this, is a, a, this is a good opportunity and we're seeing some signs that a lot of white folks are starting to maybe wrestle with their white privilege and how white supremacy lives inside of them. But I, but I don't know that it's as thorough or as deep or as meaningful as it appears. It feels like checking a box. In some ways, for some people, yeah. It, it, sometimes it does feel like I am always the optimist. Yeah. I'm always ever hopeful right. that the world is changing, that things are getting better. But I'm yeah. also very cognizant of the fact that some people are just now getting aboard this train and they'll probably get off before they get to any real deep, meaningful digestion of how race and racism has impacted them in their lives and the lives of people of color. Right. Right. All I can do is like embrace the people that truly are soul searching right now. Right. 
Sure. And I, I guess, yeah, for me, it has to do with trying to help people understand that it is in their own long-term self-interest to examine this sickness of white supremacy that lives inside of them and to do battle with it regularly and meaningfully because the, the duplicity that lives inside ignoring it, right? That the getting off of the train, as you put it, is, is ultimately going to prolong yeah. suffering that's going to cause, get, that's going to be, you know, delivered to people of color, uh, but, mm-hmm. but in other ways also hurts white folks. Ultimately, we would be better people if we could overcome white supremacy. We would live better lives if we were to actually work together with other people to try to, you know, overcome these sins of the past. But it's not easy. And for a lot of white folks, it's easier to just say, you know what, I'm going to go back to living in the bubble, so to speak. Yeah, I think that was the most interesting fruit that had been born from my master's thesis. So if you remember correctly, I did multicultural literature and its impact on suburban schools. And I polled my fellow teachers in our district and did interviews with them talking about what multicultural literature they use, how they use it. And I kind of compared a little bit of that to um, Gloria Latson Billings, um, mirrors, windows, and glass doors Mm -hmm. concept. So multicultural literature provides people a mirror to see themselves in for minority people. Um, for uh, others, it provides a, a window into another culture or another way of living. Um, and that the concept of how a lack of multicultural literature negatively impacts white students because it helps to continue to perpetuate a narrative of your story is the only story that matters. And it right. breeds such false entitlement mm-hmm. and such false like praise. Does that make sense? Oh yeah. So I think that's a massive part of the, what I learned so much from doing my master's thesis is that this is also hurting not just kids of color, but this is not a good thing for white kids because it doesn't help them to grow to be fully human. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. I mean, you know, if we think about it again, in terms of geography, like Wisconsin has good food in it, cheese curds Mm -hmm. are tasty, bratwurst, right? But, but if you don't know what it's like to have, you know, like you said, like black eyed peas or, or, you know, Mm -hmm. biscuits and gravy and, and, or, you know, going to California and having, you know, whatever, like fresh caught tuna or, you know, a real burrito from a, a, place in Watsonville, California or whatever. Like yeah. it, it's such a limited way of being in the world. I think that applies to every part of our existence. Yeah. There's there's a piece of your perspective that's missing. And that's right. more of a detriment than it is a benefit. Right. Speaking of literature, I'm not gonna put you on the spot to make you name your three favorite books, but I'm curious to know about three of your favorite books. If they happen to be your top three, great. But I'm curious to know what they are and then how you found them. How who introduced you to them or how did you come upon them? Oh man. This is an automatic shout out to Dr. Brewer of Stillman College, who blew my mind with literature when I went to college there. She was like my second mother. She was my advisor. And like I said, our school is a very, very small school. There was like five to six students in the English for English majors 101 class. Like it was not a whole lot of us. So like very, very limited uh, amounts of students provided us the access to really truly get to know our professors as people. Mm. And Dr. Brewer reintroduced me to uh, The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison in a way that literally I'll never look at that book the same. I had read it in high school, but it was like an independent reading project. Like the teachers offered it as, you know, hey, this is a book that you could read uh, that deals with beauty and like how beauty warps the self-perception. Right. And like I read it on my own with no one to really talk about it with, with no one to digest it with. Right. So going back and reading that in that class with Dr. Brewer 
and knowing that her entire like publications following were based on her interactions with that book like mm. just reading it with Dr. Brewer blew my mind to this day I read the last three pages mm -hmm. of The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison and I choke up and oh, yeah. cry every single time well it's a devastating section of a yeah. dense book I mean that that is a book I can't imagine reading that when I was in high school and getting much from it just because there's mm -hmm. so much there and it's hard to process it yeah I think it it was a good introduction to it. I was like, oh, that's an interesting book when I was in high school. But when I got to college and read it with Dr. Brewer, yeah. it, to this day, it is my top favorite novel. Sure. I just, I understood Pacola's wants. I understood mm. her needs. I understood how confused Claudia and Frida were. Like, everything looked so different when I really got a chance to intellectually dissect it with another human being that right. totally gets it yeah having a guide is so important for a lot of literature and especially i would imagine that book would make the world a difference oh yeah yeah okay so that's um, number one other favorite books would probably include memoirs of a geisha mm -hmm. because i've read that a bunch of times and i've um watched the movie like 104 times i kid okay. you not without fail i can mm. recite every single word out of the movie and i can nice. quote passages out of memoirs of a geisha yeah um which is a really good book and then i think right now one of my favorites has been in the last couple of years has been uh an american marriage by tayari jones hmm. it's, it's awesome in terms of the way that she captures black language and mm -hmm. black experiences and black marriage and how there's systemic injustice in the book and she handles it so beautifully from both the side of the wife whose husband has been falsely accused and the side of the husband who has to serve time for being falsely accused and it's so complex with the characters and how the characters are so wholly human. They have mm. such beautiful qualities about them, but they have such glaring flaws. And it's just, it's a really good book. It's very complicated with it tough. It's a dense book, like you mentioned about Toni Morrison's Bluest Eye. Mm -hmm. um, it was a really good read. I enjoyed it. Yeah, it's, I haven't read Beale Street, but it sounds a little similar to the movie version of If Beale Street Could Talk. Yes, very similar. Interesting. Uh, and so speaking of movies, then I wonder if there are maybe three or five films that have been most important to you. Oh, um, the color purple, mm -hmm. because I don't know a little black girl in America that is not like word for word aware of how the color purple like is played. Like you have to have watched it 8 million times by the time right. you're like, 30 or 40 because it's right. just such a quintessential black film mm -hmm. um i really loved ooh spike lee school days mm -hmm. i watched it my freshman year of college and that again just stuck with me yeah and then oh 13th mm -hmm. 13, Absolutely. but I don't know if that counts as a movie. Yeah, sure it does. Yeah, I'm, I'm a huge fan of documentaries. In fact, I say to my students all the time, like, if you go to a bookstore or a library, half the books are nonfiction. But when we think mm -hmm. about movies, we tend to only think about fictional movies. So I think it yeah. makes perfect sense to yeah, include that. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed 13. Yeah, Ava DuVernay is, I, I'm constantly amazed at her range. You know, when I saw, you know, Wrinkle in Time, I don't think is an amazing movie, but I think that she did some amazing things with it. And I think she clearly had a love for that project that came out and how it looked and, and sort of how it felt. And Yeah, I loved the way that she handled the multiracial mm -hmm. cast. Does that make yeah. sense? Even yeah. like the small things like the boy, uh, the young male interest of uh, mm -hmm. the main character, like him commenting on, I love your curly hair. Yeah. That speaks volumes to curly haired girls all over the world. And I just loved how she integrated that into 
the movie, although it's not necessarily a part of right the book right and 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 i think it it makes sense in a way because the book you know part of the book's rebellion is against that kind of like conformity and the, there's one way of thinking so yeah. for that for her to incorporate that theme of different forms of beauty into the movie i think yeah it felt very natural to me mhm well this has been an excellent conversation i really appreciate you uh being here for it are there other things that are on your mind lately i mean you know we talked a little bit about some of the protests and uh i guess we didn't really talk about distance learning is there any thoughts that you have about how that process went or what you see in the fall i am not excited about distance learning at all like yeah. i said kids work well with me because they can interact with me yeah so even kids that don't quote unquote do school don't mm-hmm. like school they're kids that i have a really good relationship with so we work through school together right and that is such a massive piece of what is missing in distance learning yeah. that teacher student relationship and that student to student relationship it feels so hollow to not have that sense of community in your online classroom because it's not the same. Right. Are you concerned about the health risks uh, when we go back? I am very concerned about the health risks. My mother is a uh, vulnerable citizen, so yeah. I I don't want to I don't want to bring anything to her. I want to make sure that she's not sick. She does foster care, so mm. she's going to end up sending her teenagers to schools right. that are going to be filled with people and then those teenagers are going to come back home right to her like yeah. i'm i'm very concerned yeah it seems like a a moment when there are so many different factors at play and i feel like it's very important for all of us and anybody listening can certainly be part of this to make clear that the school districts need to do everything in their power to maintain health not only for students but also for teachers because we're going to be like you said coming back home uh, to people who might be vulnerable and that's uh something to take into the consideration of the whole process so I agree final question as we uh, wrap things up here what is a piece of music a song or a track or uh, something that you would like to send the listener off with oh man It's super old. I don't care, but um, Exchange by Bryson Tiller. Okay. I do love that song. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Faith. I really appreciate you taking time for this interview. And uh, yeah, have a great rest of your day. Thank you very much for having me. This is what happened when I think about you. I get in my feelings, yeah I start reminiscing, yeah Next time around, fuck, I want it to be different, yeah Waiting on a sign, guess it's time for a different prayer Lord, please save her for me Do this one favor for me I had to change my play ways Got way too complicated for me I hope she's waiting for me Everywhere she go, they playing my songs That's why I say the things that I say that way I know you can't ignore me But so, so, yeah So give me all of you in exchange for me Just give me all of you in exchange for me For me Break it down Yes, sir. Check. We used to lay up and then stay up, have sex and then blow dang. I shouldn't have played no games with you, just leveled up my brain. Last time I saw you, we ain't speak. That was strange. Guess there's nothing I could do. Man, it's true. X has changed. Yeah. Hey. Guess you changed for the better. Better. I know you know how to make me jealous. I was never loyal, let you tell it, yo. But I'm ready to fix it if you ready, baby. So, so, yeah. So give me all of you in exchange for me Just give me all of you in exchange for me For me For real, shout Yeah, I know Yeah Is you at two keys or ten roof? <laughs> Turn up, we until we just getting loose Baby, I'm low-key feeling you Don't be 
cynical, won't fuck you over, wanna fuck you over. And again, the truth is, I ain't really here to start problems. Girl, I swear to God, them hoes can't never say they got him. Know how bad you wanna tell him, don't try him. I don't wanna tell him, let's surprise him. I don't wanna get into it, why you stressing him? I've been driving back and forth from Louisville to Lexington. Mileage on the whip, got your ass in my grip. College, make you wanna strip for them dollars. Nah, girl, I got a job for you. Swear to God, I could do a lot for you. Saw you strolling through the campus, I had to stop for you. I was scrolling through the gram, girl, I had to follow you. Say what's up with you. You got my soul.